to that which is good, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sin beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So if I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The inside doesn't always match the outside. I became aware of this when, as a 20-something new arrival to Asia, I first tasted the beautiful cakes I saw displayed in the bakeries. At that point in my life, my mom had been, in my eyes, the world's best baker, and these marvelous cakes looked every bit as good as hers. That was until I took a bite and realized with disappointment that they were nothing at all like my mom's. One time in Japan, I bought what I thought was an apple fritter and was sadly surprised when I bit into the cold sausage hidden inside. The outside doesn't always match the inside. And sometimes, it's just easier to fix up the outside. A coat of paint can cover up a rotten wall. Plastic surgery can make 60-year-olds look like they're 40 again. A few years back, I needed surgery to remove a potentially dangerous growth from my aging body. And when my wife learned that it would actually be a plastic surgeon doing the work, she suggested I have a few more things done while I'm at it. The plastic surgeon could take care of my fat folds that my six-year-old grandson comments on, but can't reverse the fact of aging happening throughout my body. In the passage we're looking at today, Paul will be discussing the problem of our inside, the person we are, not matching up with the outside, the person we should be or want to be. In this case, the outside is the way that God has designed the world to work and for us to be. To use contemporary parlance, the best version of ourselves. In this passage, this is called the law, which in Hebrew is the Torah, the most basic instruction from God. And here, God gives the vision of what life should be and invites human beings into that kind of good life. At the end of the Torah, we find this simple invitation, so choose life. God has given us a vision for the good life, along with the standards and rules that help us live that life. On the inside, however, is the reality of who we truly are, broken, distorted, full of desires that push us toward pain and heartbreak, very different from that ideal or vision of the good life. So when Paul reflects on the mismatch he sees in his own life, he concludes, wretched man that I am. 
He seems like a thirsty man reaching for a glass of water, finding it just out of his reach. In Romans 7, 14 to 25, one of Paul's most well-known writings, he writes about the problem of doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he does want to do. Before we look into the text, let me just clarify my approach because people have understood it in different ways, and here are the two main ways. First, something Paul is describing his experience before he was a Christian. So before he knew God, before his heart was redeemed, his will was empowered by the indwelling spirit, he struggled. He knew God's standards, he knew the law's vision for the best life possible, and he did his very best to meet those standards, but he failed. So some understand this as a description of Paul's struggle before he met Christ and experienced the Spirit's power. Others see this as Paul's description of his current struggle with sin. This was the view of Augustine back in the 5th century, and the predominant view ever since adopted by both Calvin and Luther in the 16th centuries. Both interpretations are possible, but I'll be basing my interpretation on the second view that Paul is describing his ongoing struggle with sin, and I'll give three reasons. First, in verse 14, he begins using first-person verbs. This indicates he's describing something current and ongoing in his life. Second, I believe Paul is describing his own struggle because this interpretation fits best with the progression of his argument. In Romans 1 to 5, he had described how God justified sinners freely by his grace. In chapters 6 and 7, he discusses the topic of sin and how these justified, therefore innocent people, are to think about their sin. In chapter 6, he twice asked the question, are we to sin that grace may increase? No, he says, we're to live out our justification by offering to God every part of our bodies. And since we are free from slavery to sin, we can now offer ourselves to God for righteousness. The tongue that once criticized can now bless. The eyes that once lusted can now look with love on the needs of people. The hands that once worked for selfish gain can now be used in the service of others. Sin no longer has a hold on our bodies, so we can offer them to God. And chapter 7 continues the discussion of our relationship to sin, but it adds another apparently paradoxical element to the discussion. Though I can offer to God the parts of my body for righteousness, the Christian life is not, in fact, that simple. I continue to wake up in the morning grumpy, And I can't seem to force myself to be nice, at least not before a strong cup of coffee. I still feel impatient when the driver in front of me is going under the speed limit, and then I discover he's actually talking on his cell phone. Doesn't that make you mad? Don't you want to drive past and give him the evil eye? And don't we, in fact, sometimes do that? You know you shouldn't, but you do. You know you should overlook the offense, as the Bible says, but that just doesn't feel as good as venting. And so we vent our anger, we entertain our lusts, we engage in gossip, and we can be remarkably cold to people, we can wash our hands of the poor. In other words, we fail to offer our bodies as instruments of righteousness. So Romans 7 addresses the other part of the Christian's relationship to sin. On the one hand, we should, as Romans 6 teaches, just say no. On the other hand, as Romans 7 shows, we often don't just say no. So this leads me to the third reason why I believe Paul is describing his own, own current experience. As a Christian for several decades, I can completely relate to him. 
In describing his struggle in these verses, he's describing my own struggle with sin. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. I heard the exhortation from Romans 6 loud and clear. Yes, I offer my body to God, every part of it, as an instrument of righteousness. But then I take it back again. I can fully relate to Paul's struggle. So as we read Paul's autobiographical account of his struggle with sin, my hope is that we will be able to make Romans 7, 14 to 25 part of our own spiritual autobiographies. Now, we might think there's a danger here. If I put myself in this chapter, I'll give myself just another excuse to sin. Yep, I've slandered that person again. Oh, well, I'm only human. We might think it's a bit dangerous to locate ourselves in chapter 7 because we already have a hard enough time doing what we shouldn't do and not doing what we should. But that's not Paul's heart. He's not looking for a loophole or an excuse. He's not treating his sin lightly. He's agonizing over his actions because they are so inferior to the ideal. But he doesn't end up with an other excuse to sin. Instead, he ends up in worship. To place ourselves in our ongoing struggle in chapter 7 is to give ourselves another motivation to worship the God of grace. So let's trace Paul's thoughts here through verses 14 to 25 and use these verses to reflect on our own lives as we go along. So verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. This is the basic contrast of this passage. The rest of his thoughts flow from this first contrast. Think about the words spiritual and of the flesh. The law is the Torah, or God's instruction, a vision of the good life. This is the way I want you to live, God says. This is the way I have designed life. It's the way you'll best flourish. It's the way of peace. The revelation is spiritual. It comes from God. The contrasting word to spiritual is of the flesh. Flesh can mean generally humanity and often is used to describe the fallen state of humanity. Peter wrote that flesh is temporary, all flesh will fade away. Flesh is fallen, and as Paul wrote in another letter, its desires oppose the desires of the Spirit. In this verse, Paul is saying about himself that he's a human being whose life had been thoroughly infiltrated by sin. Sin is not just a list of bad things, but it's more like a horrible sickness that has damaged every part of him. In his book, Sin and Grace, Christian psychologist Mark McMinn refers to inherent sin, the kind of sin that Paul is describing, as white noise, the noise that's always there but has become so much a part of life that we don't even recognize it anymore. We lived in Hong Kong for several decades, a city that never sleeps. There was no such thing as true quiet. But the noise was so much a part of life that we barely noticed it. Sin has affected our attitudes, emotions, thoughts, and actions so much that we don't, usually don't even stop to think about it even being there. We just live with being grumpy, fearful, critical, the white noise of our soul. See, there's no problem with God's vision of the good life. The problem we find is this huge gap between God's holy standards and our own abilities to meet them. 
The book Addiction and Grace was written by a Christian psychiatrist, Gerald May. He demonstrates that we are all addicted to a number of things in life. And from a long list he inserted in the book, he mentioned that he is personally addicted to at least 14 things on the list. And those addictions include things like attachments to food, gossip, performance, Uh, talking, work, golf, cleaning, and all kinds of behavior that become part of our own fleshly existence. Let me read just a short quote from his book. For the addicted person alone, struggling only with willpower, the desire to continue the addiction will win. It will win because it resides at the level of biological conditioning, and it is always operative. Willpower and resolution come and go, but the addictive process never sleeps. Have you ever thought of yourself as an addict? Besides the common addictions of drinking, smoking, drug use, there are so many sinful ways of being that become defaults to all of us, and I still refuse to put coffee on the list. Some of us could share about our need to please people, how that's become a default action, how it's led to bad choices. Some would recognize that we've been unable to stop gossiping, even after being so convicted by that Bible study on gossip that we vowed to the Lord, I will never gossip again. And we're so surprised that never actually means until a few days later when I learn an interesting tidbit about so-and-so. The law, God's instruction, is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If we reflect with humility on our lives, we will stand amazed at our failures. I just don't understand why I would do something so absolutely foolish as that. I've had the opportunity of knowing several people with substance addictions, and I really can't see that they they are much different from me. The biggest difference is most likely that they had means and opportunities that I didn't. Paul was not addicted to drugs or alcohol, but he does describe himself somewhat like an addict. I do not understand what I do. I know it's harming me and others, maybe killing me, but yet I do it anyway. This is us. In Romans 6 and 7, there are these two main ways that we are to normalize our perspective on sin. First, we are to be free from slavery and offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Yes, we can change. The Spirit is in us. But like Paul, I also accept the fact that I'm tainted by sin through and through. Alan Redpath was a faithful Bible teacher in England. He thought and wrote about the challenges of living the Christian life, given the fact of who we really are. Redpath wrote, The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And as he aged, he discovered he wasn't actually becoming more perfect. He said, The Christian life doesn't get easier as one gets older. I finally heard him speak when he was already in his 70s, about 10 years before his death. He was teaching the book of Hosea, and he began his talk with these words. I'm with you today in fear and trembling because I know that I have the ability to stand here and teach the Word of God and then go outside this classroom and commit great sin against God. Studying and teaching the Scriptures, God's instruction, God's Torah, for years led Dr. Redpath to that Paul-like self-awareness I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, and now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. There's nothing wrong with the law. 
God's instruction. In 2005, uh, before marijuana was legalized in Canada, four police officers were shot and killed in Alberta while they were investigating a grow-up. At that time, some people blamed their deaths on the law. If growing marijuana was legal, they said, the officers wouldn't have died. This is one possible way to solve the problem of the inside not matching the outside. Change the outside so it fits my inside. For example, at the uh, Set Free retreat recently, Pastor Willie described God's vision for human sexuality as something like a river needing to be kept within its banks. Now, I can accept that this is right and good and seek to live within the flow of the river, but if my heart wants something else, then I need to destroy the banks and create a floodplain where anything goes. And of course, this is the way that many people solve the problem of getting what our hearts want. We change the boundaries. We adjust the standards to fit our desires. And there's a big difference between a river that keeps the land fruitful and a flood that destroys the land. But if we'll accept that it's not the standards that need to be changed, but ourselves, then we too can say the words of verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul didn't have such a high view of his own ability to determine what is good. No, when he failed to do what he should do, the problem did not lay with the standard, but with Paul himself. Just because I persist in anger and bitterness does not mean that there's something wrong with Jesus' command to forgive 70 times 7. No, my failure helps me appreciate the command even more and my own desperate need for help outside myself. Verses 17 to 21 Paul says these words, it's the sin that dwells within me. And in verse 17, he says, it's not really me doing this, but it's sin living in me. In other words, my will has been so severely handicapped through the presence of sin in my life, in my body, that it seems to have a mind of its own. How many New Year's resolutions are broken on January 2nd? Oh, the presence of sin. It can lead us in such surprising ways. We find ourselves hurting people with our words, becoming cold to family members, unable to warm up, fantasizing about forbidden fruit, cheating on exams and taxes. Sin living in us, Paul writes, leads us to act against reason. It blinds us from what is best, prevents us from choosing the best. The poet Emily Dickinson wrote, The heart wants what the heart wants. In his preface to Romans, Martin Luther wrote, Sin in the scriptures means not only external works of the body, but also all those movements within us which bestir themselves and move us to do the external works, namely the depth of the heart with all its powers. We're nearing the climax of this great and torturous chapter. But before we get there, we must locate ourselves in this story. Can you see yourself here? Or do you see others here? You know, as I was preparing this sermon, other people began popping into my, my mind. I find it so much easier to see the speck in my brother's eye than the forest of trees in my own. The only pronoun Paul uses in this text is I. The text only works with that pronoun. When we replace it with you, we become harsh and condemning. When we replace it with they, we become distant and slanderous. The pronoun is I. This is my story. I am the one in whom sin dwells. I am the one who constantly fails to do what I know I should do. I am my own worst enemy. And if I really believe that, I'll stop pointing the finger of blame at you. 
the Christian life, the life of love, will not work until I'm thoroughly convinced that this is the case. And if I think you're the problem, my love will always be conditional. I will always only love you if you can overcome your problem. Well, verses 21 to 24, Paul makes a conclusion about this great tension that is inside of him. And this tension exists at some level for every sincere follower of Christ. If I'm completely happy with the person I am right now, either I don't understand God's expectations or I fail to see the depths of my sin. Now, I'm not suggesting we live in despair. Paul will come to a very different conclusion. But I am suggesting that this is normal Christian thinking. We see these things at work that are described in verses 21 to 23. The delight in the ways of God and the desire to do them, but sin and death at work within our bodies. In verse 23, Paul uses the picture of war to describe our helplessness. Sin is like a great warrior that's fighting against our minds. It leads us to do things that are beyond reason. It makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in my members. Can you relate to that? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be ruled by a truly evil king, someone who found joy in making your life miserable? Now, in our country, we can go to schools we like, marry the people we like, join the army if we like, choose whatever kind of career we'd like, and live where we want to live. But what if our ruler took our children away, conscripted them in his army, made us do whatever he wanted us to do? Paul's message is that all of us are living this kind of life to a certain extent. And when it comes to sin, we are no match. We can't control our tongues. We can't control our desires. We can't control our emotions. We're captive to the fact of sin's ongoing presence. And so he makes this final statement in verse 24 with a question. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is the salvation question that we ask every day. We see ourselves trapped in a dungeon. We have failed yet again to do what we should. We've made yet another choice to do something, say something, think something that has hurt us and has hurt other people. We violated God's law, and we are prisoners. Who will come to our aid? Who will open the door of the prison? Is that your question? This must become the question of the person who wants to know the grace of God. Let's take seriously the presence of sin living in us. Let's not treat it like a petty annoyance or trifling habit. If sin is petty, God is small. If the prison of sin is not so bad after all, what possible need is there for a deliverer? No, sin is deadly. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It takes a long time to get to this final phrase. It's an introduction to the glorious joy of Romans 8, a wonderful description of freedom in Christ. But we get there only through the deep and personal knowledge of our sin. Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, these words, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The tension is not over, the failures keep coming, but the judgment has been made. You are free from the penalty of sin. You will continue to experience its awful presence, but you're free from its penalty. Well, let me make a few points of application from this text. There's a lot of applications we could make. If this is truly our spiritual biography, if we know that our inside really doesn't match the outside very well. Let me just suggest four things that will happen in our souls. First, we will hope. 
We'll long for that good life that God's word envisions. We yearn for pure thoughts, good relationships, peace at every level, and we know we can't get there by ourselves. But instead of becoming hopeless over ourselves, we find hope in God. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Quoting G.K. Chesterton, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful... Hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be strength. In Romans, Paul suggests that there is nothing more hopeless than our sin. It's while we were hopeless, while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. Ignoring our sin leads to despair. Recognizing how bad we really are is the doorway to hope. Second, we will be truly humble God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. My pride drives me away from God, but humility attracts God to me. In Isaiah, God said that he lives in a high and holy place, but also with the one who's contrite. King David said that the main kind of offering God wants is a humble and contrite heart. My humility matters more to God than preaching a good sermon, leading thousands to Jesus, or feeding the homeless. In Proverbs, there's a list of things that the Lord hates. At the very top of the list is haughty eyes. He hates it when people think they're better than others, when teachers teach and leaders lead from above rather than beside. Third, we will accept others. My intense struggle with sin is the one thing that enables me to sit with a criminal in prison and with the respected person who lives in a mansion and to see no difference between the two. One of the main reasons Paul wrote Romans was to encourage a diverse group of people to simply accept each other. Sin is our common denominator. It's what we share. In an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, you may stand up to introduce yourself with the words, Hi, I'm Rob, and I'm an alcoholic. Could we adapt that for the church? (laughs) Anytime it's my turn to speak, I could begin with, Hi, I'm Rob. I'm a sinner who can only boast in God's grace. And you would respond with, oh, wow, me too. Here are some of the best words from one of the best books on Christian community, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. Well, fourth and finally, we will worship. This is the destination for those of us who long for that vision of the good life. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All my brokenness, past, present, and future, is piled high upon the body of my Lord Jesus, who alone is my boast and my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this part of your word that helps us to know better who we are 
And in the knowledge of ourselves, we don't despair and we don't reject ourselves because you haven't done that. You have given us the message of hope, the way of hope, and the power of hope. We thank you that you have accepted us completely as we are. We ask that your Spirit would keep probing our hearts with this knowledge of ourselves, but more that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you, our God of eternal and boundless grace, in whom we find all of our hope and joy. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.